today on Ag News Daily. Yeah, she was not amused. <laughs> so he flew back up and was like, hey, we're going to go be dude ranchers. Grandma's like, well, you know, you don't know anything about ranching. You don't know anything about Arizona. You don't know anything about hospitality. Listeners, thanks for joining us on this October 5th, Wednesday edition of 2022's Ag News Daily Podcast. Jeepers, Delaney, the way that started off, I might need to go back to bed. You might need another cup of coffee too, Tanner. That's what I'm missing. I haven't had one yet. Well, what are you doing? Yes, I need to go fill that up. I don't know. You're the one that spent the morning in a coffee shop. Yeah, I don't even like coffee. Yeah, well, (laughs) if there's like a bunch of extra stuff added in like peppermint mocha or pumpkin spice or whatever, then I typically do okay. But yeah, I've had my coffee for the next few months. That's funny. Well, that's good. It's a little bit of a gloomy day here. We got a lot of cloud cover. It's certainly going to keep a lot of farmers out of the soybean fields today. Did your husband get the beans down yesterday? He certainly did. And that is a huge relief, although we had lots more corn acres this year than soybeans. So we're really maybe only a quarter or two not even a halfway done. So it's okay. We're moving right along. I'm just worried, Tanner. I always like to make sure we get done by Thanksgiving time so we can enjoy our Thanksgiving and keep on moving. I don't know if we're going to make it this year if we keep having rain days like this, but I think we're probably going to be in the clear here because it's going to be pretty dry for most of the Midwest. Looking at weather forecasts here, harvest is moving right along, but expecting to see some dry weather. And it's still really dry when you look at soil moisture and the U.S. drought monitor, Tanner. A lot of the Midwest is continuing to be in drought-like conditions And unfortunately, rain is not currently in the forecast for large swaths of the Midwest here for the next couple of weeks, Tanner. Yeah, and it looks like as we get into the end of this week and the weekend, wide portions of North Dakota, Minnesota, the state of Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota are looking at freezing temperatures. So Mm. it may drop to 25 25 degrees Fahrenheit Friday morning morning and then again also Saturday morning. So this is a widespread freeze alert as we look at the weekend, but also like you mentioned, dry conditions. Nebraska's Bovee fire has now grown to nearly 19,000 acres. So Tuesday evening, the fire near Halsey, Nebraska had covered nearly 19,000 acres and was only half contained. So despite The increase, the spokesperson for the Rocky Mountain Complex Incident Management for firefighters said that they made a lot of progress Tuesday into the evening. A result of a light rain and humidity has really slowed the fire activity down. But oftentimes what Mother Nature gives, she can take away was the quote that was used here. So again, just a caution to those traveling through Nebraska and everybody in the fields this fall. Just be careful of those fire the potential fire starting hazards and make sure you have fire mitigating equipment with you to prevent large fires like this from starting. Yeah, I just talked to a friend the other day who thankfully everyone was okay, but combine caught on fire and the field, their entire field caught on fire after they were finished chopping silage. So definitely that time of year with it being this dry, you got to stay on high alert. 
But Tanner, this time of year, we're also dealing with a lot of backlog on the U.S. Mississippi River. Commercial barge traffic on southern stretches of the Mississippi River. We're at a standstill on Tuesday as we continue to see extremely low water levels, which have been halting shipments of grain, fertilizer, and other commodities as they're trying to get down to our southern ports. This is certainly creating a little of a supply chain snag for especially U.S. grains that are hitting the supply pipeline. Um, But around 100 towboats hauling some 1,600 barges were lined up for miles yesterday. And they're trying to get down largely, like I said, to some of our southern ports. Uh, But one big trouble spot is near Lake Providence, Louisiana, that has been largely closed since last week and is really creating a logjam of barges here. So The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is dredging the river to help deepen the shipping channel and to allow some cargoes to pass through. But a lot of folks are fearing that it's not going to be quick enough to get products out of the ports, Tanner. Yeah, that's not good news. But good news coming out of Ukraine, their agricultural exports jumped in September. According to their ministry, uh, the exports of ag products continued to flow out of Ukraine for more than 6.9 million metric tons as they were shipped out in September. 3.8 million metric tons shipped from the ports of Odessa, 1.24 million tons from the Danube ports, 1.18 million by rail, and 640,000 tons by road. The exports in September rose by 41% over August and accounted for nearly 71% of all exports from the country. So a big major focus there, thanks to Turkey and the United Nations, that have been brokering these grain deals. They expect to see their shipments increase. Products were carried on 176 ships that left during September. That was up from only 65 in August. So the Ukrainian government is proud to state that those shipments are on the increase. Well, Tanner, as we continue to watch crop progress, you know, we talked yesterday about where the nation sits as far as total harvest goes but it's interesting i was reading through an article this morning north dakota farmers are finally getting into the field and have had just shy of six suitable days for field work and are just really getting started three percent of the state's corn harvested trailing well behind the five-year average and as you mentioned potentially going to get some frost this weekend which could impact uh, harvested acres again i suppose though they're they're quite used to harvesting in the snow tanner do you think i'm sure that that's uh, something they don't enjoy doing but have certainly the technology and experience to figure out uh hopefully this frost and cold temp doesn't bring snow with it and it's just just chilly but i want to jump back over seas again workers at the felix stowe which is uk's busiest container port container port have returned to work after an eight-day strike. We teased this last uh, two weeks ago, and it actually took place, but the congestion at this port has become a problem. This is one of the largest ports, container ports for the EU. The disruption of the strike had caused big issues, and they have a new one planned from October 7th or October 11th to the 17th if they don't get items figured out. So it looks like, Delaney, the biggest issue is pay, and that is between the port's Chinese owners 
Hutchinson and the union Unite, they have stated that nearly 2,500 workers were offered a 7% increase backdated to the first of the year, but the union is claiming that inflation running greater than 10% makes that effectively a pay cut. So it seems like all they have left to do is negotiate on the salary side of things. Maybe we can avoid that October 11th strike. However, the Felix Stowe sees nearly 2,000 ships a year, and this is causing an issue because container ships have been having two-day delays outside of the port, and now that has increased to nine days, and they don't really have any other options. It looks like here, according to a lot of the shippers, they would rather sit and wait rather than divert their route to another port. So another strike and shipment congestion that we can watch. Hopefully it doesn't have much impact with, on us here in the U.S. Sandra, it's interesting too when you think about the strike or a potential strike and the main objection being pay, if they do go on strike or you're trying to refill that labor supply, everyone's having a hard time filling jobs right now. So I can't imagine where they think they're going to find new labor if they do go on strike. Right. Yeah, it would seem from the outsider looking in, boosting another 3% of a pay raise would be a relatively minor expense than seeking hiring and training new help. Yeah, absolutely. But Switching tracks here, I thought this was an interesting headline as we continue to look at major companies investing in the plant-based and alternative protein industry. JBS USA announced again they're looking at investing into additional plant-based proteins. They are closing on a deal with Plantera Foods Business uh, just two years after the launch here which is a plant-based protein manufacturer that launched the Ozo brand at Kroger during the summer of 2020. Uh, They're actually looking at closing this Plantera Foods business altogether. They invested right when it opened in 2020, Tanner, and are not seeing good luck with it. So JBS said in a statement that they continue to believe in the potential of plant-based protein options for consumers And they remain committed to finding alternative protein markets. But this one just didn't work out for them, Tanner. Yeah, that was uh, across Twitter yesterday and the day before, talking about how it was um, people who had tried the product, stated it was a bad product for taste and bad product for press and apparently a bad business. It just uh, had quite a few posts in my tweet, in my feed from those tweeting at us so that that doesn't surprise me it'd be interesting to see what their next move is uh, for those plant-based proteins well last two little pieces i have delaney just a quick survey uh from purdue and the ag economy barometer they had stated that they did their fall cover crop survey nearly 75 percent of farmers and ranchers that responded to the Purdue telephone survey said they made no changes to their operation because of climate change. The figure this fall was almost the same as it was in December of 2019, so three years ago. However, the farmers' usage of cover crops appeared to be increasing. They, 57% of the respondents said that they use cover crops on at least some of their farmland. That's up from 52%. A sizable block, however, Delaney, at 28%, said they've never used cover crops. So roughly one in 
one in five or one in four said they had planted cover crops in the past, but the nearly 28% had said they've never used those. When the respondents were asked why they use, it wasn't for climate change, it was for soil health and higher yields. So cover crops are being more widely adopted, but not for what the headlines are being used. I'll state probably a lot of our listeners don't mind the additional subsidized funding as it comes to the cost of putting those in place. Um, but that is not the sole purpose for what the cover crop use is. And lastly, we had touched on uh, Cody Allen Easter Day and his issue with Tyson Foods. They reached yesterday. He was sentenced to 11 years in prison and $244 million in restitution. However, he's been granted the opportunity for his attorney to provide a rebuttal and states that they may be able to use uh, a portion of the $70 million in restitution already paid and using throughout uh, this process demonstrated restitution that they are stating here may add back up. They're claiming nearly 12 million in services rendered. Uh, they're stating that Tyson violated the Packers and Stockyards Act for another 51 million. There were uh, additional uses of Cody's beef titling for 11 years. So it's interesting, Delaney, it doesn't seem like this 244 million is actually gonna get paid, but it'll be interesting to see if he actually gets to spend 11 years behind bars. Hey Tanner, you got an extra 244 mil laying around? I don't. Nope. Not going to help them out. <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder that when they announce these large numbers, like, do they expect that to ever actually get fully paid or? Well, the first headline when this came about is that his ranch was sold to uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints at a bankruptcy auction. So that's the other side of this is the man's already filed bankruptcy to try and squeeze another $244 million out of him, I think would be difficult. Hmm. Well, interesting. Uh, I don't think I have any news left today. Dinner, what about you? That's it. Let's jump into the markets. All right. Well, corn is trading with, uh, flirting with neutral today, right around unchanged to a penny or two higher on the board here at the midday, trading right around 685 in new crop corn. New crop soybeans trading down 11 to 12 cents here at 1371. December wheat up 13 on the morning at 916. And in livestock today, we're seeing mostly weakness in the cattle complex here as the December live cattle contract down 42 and a half cents at a buck 47. November feeders down 20 cents on the morning at 175. And December lean hogs up $1.25 at 75. 72. And Tanner, today we are turning it over to a cool conversation I had yesterday with Stephen True, third generation rancher at the White Stallion Dude Ranch. Well, folks, super excited today to talk to Stephen True, who's the third generation of White Stallion Ranch located just outside of Tucson, Arizona. And Stephen, we had the pleasure of meeting a few weeks ago in person, and I was just blown away by the story of the White Stallion Ranch. So super excited to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So Stephen, White Stallion Ranch, you're the third generation of your family to 
be involved in the ranch and continue the ranch's legacy. But the history goes back much further than that. Tell us about the ranch's history. Oh, I'd love to. Yes. Uh, so like you mentioned, I'm the third generation. My family uh, bought the ranch uh, turnkey in 1965, but it goes way uh, back beyond that. It was, it was a squatter's ranch. So it was just unincorporated federal land. Um, uh, we estimate the original building was built about 1900 and that is the old rancher's house, the bunk house, and then the pump house. So it was a squatter's ranch. We don't know who the squatter was from 1900 till it was officially homesteaded in 1936 uh, by a man named David Young. So he came out, he, there was a well and improvements already. That was, everything was pretty much set up for him to file the homestead paperwork. He decided to work it for three years. He was given the deed in 39, retroactively dated in 36. And then in the 40s, it was owned by a lady named Varner, who turned it into the Dude Ranch. There was an Army Air Corps base nearby. She built some cabins for officers to rent so they could stay while they were stationed out here. And it just sort of morphed into a Dude Ranch then, changed hands uh, a couple times. Uh, my family bought it from a family called the Towns, who were from Massachusetts. They'd come out, stayed as guests. And they, uh, it was named the this uh, MZ Bar Ranch at the time. And he through town bought it changed it to he always wanted to name it after his favorite book so he named it the black stallion and there was a, a local silversmith who was buddies with him who uh made him a bolo tie that said bs and he was it was 1956 <laughs> he was so horrified that he would be called the bs ranch he arbitrarily changed it to white stallion so uh that's how it got its name um and then my family came in uh, 1965 my grandfather uh, was um, just a businessman up in Denver. My family's from Wyoming. He was working in Denver at the time. Drove home in a blizzard and uh, just was done being cold and decided he was moving to Tucson and just looked at any way he could be his own boss. Found the dude ranch and the rest is, uh, yeah, history, if you will, for us. Yeah, your poor grandma was probably thinking when he came home to tell her that he wanted to buy a dude ranch that he was crazy because like you said he you, you didn't have ranching experience in your family did he ever talk about growing up I mean wanting to be his own boss but what it was like uh, making that transition or making that move down to Tucson um so I yeah she was not amused <laughs> so he flew back up and was like hey we're gonna go be dude ranchers grandma's like well you know you don't know anything about ranching you don't know anything about Arizona, you don't think about hospitality. Um, but he was really set to be in Arizona and decided this is what he wanted to do. He'd never really, you know, specifically wanted to be a dude rancher or a rancher or anything like that. This was just his, you know, ticket down here and what he wanted to do. So they just, uh, they just were hardworking, smart folks. So they just, they just figured it out, but, uh, no, they hadn't had any, you know, prior, you know, Oh, well, let's work for a while and we'll go be ranchers. They just kind of decided to do it. Which is awesome. And and obviously they've done things right because now it's been in the family for three generations. But Stephen, when you think about a working dude ranch, what is that? So we're um, a dude ranch means we take guests. So people come stay with us. We have a, you know, rooms and a kitchen and lodge and everything for them to hang out, but we still uh, raise cattle. So it's, it's a, it's a ranch whose revenue probably mainly come some ranches ours revenue mainly comes from the dude aspect um some ranches are more from the cattle and then they just take a couple dudes but um so people come and stay uh they typically stay about a week we teach them to ride if they don't already know how we you know ride in the flats we ride up in the mountains 
we teach them to work cattle a little bit. We do some team penning and some cattle sorting and stuff like that. So we, it's a, it's a working ranch that still has, that has a, a hospitality aspect to it. And I think it's really interesting because you get guests, it sounds like from all over the U S but also all over the world. What kind of guests do you typically see at the ranch? And is it every day there's guests there? Every day we are open um, every day of the year. Our busiest times would be the holidays because the kids are out of school. So Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, uh, the summer um, is busy, but uh, it's hot in Arizona in the summer. So it, it does, it, it, it's busy enough, but it it's slows down for sure. It's not like the spring and the, and the, and the winter for us. Um, and yeah, we, our biggest draws uh, domestically would be Massachusetts, California, Illinois. And then internationally we get in the, in a normal time uh, in the winter, we get 40% of our guests international. And then in the summer we get 80% of our guests are international. Most of whom are coming from England. Although we get a lot of Germans, Dutch, French and Scandinavian as well. How interesting. And, Stephen, so it's a it's a working ranch, right? Your main focus is kind of the guest experience aspect, but you guys also have cattle as well. Tell us about that side of the business. Oh yeah, so we raise um, here at White Stallion. Uh, we raise Texas Longhorn. Uh, we raise mainly for uh, rodeo, and then eventually their meat. But we raise them. Um, they're pretty low maintenance cattle, uh, which is pretty nice. They're they're uh, predator resistant. They're uh, high natural birthing rates we've only ever had to pull one in the last probably 30 years um so they they just kind of do their own thing we don't have, have a calving season we just kind of we're on rolling admissions if you will and we wean when it's time to wean um we raise them mainly for rodeo we do um stuff with our guests we do a uh, exhibition rodeo for our guests we do cattle penning team sorting and then we also uh, do some stock contracting we raise um uh some pretty nice uh, bulldogging steers um, and we, we, we rent out roping steers and stuff as well. So that's, that's where we, what we use those cattle for. And then they either go to market at the end of their sort of rodeo career or the cows will end up back here if it's time to uh, cut in some new cattle. And Steven, you guys are really in the heart of, of the desert, nonetheless, more so um, down there in Tucson and your ranch butts up to some mountains which presents some interesting challenges, I'm sure, from a weather perspective, but also from a land ownership perspective. Tell us about some of the challenges that the ranch has gone through from that perspective. Oh, yeah. So we, uh, we, we're bordered on two sides by mountains. Um, to the south is, uh, we have a, there's a large, we're in the Tucson mountain range. Uh, to the south is actually our, our neighbor there is the Suar National Park West. Uh, before us, it was um, we actually owned the mountain range to the um, south of us. But then in 1980, the national monument at the time came and uh, uh, claimed them um, under eminent domain. They were going to pay us what they considered fair market value. My grandfather wasn't in the he always said he wasn't in the land selling business. Um, he loved to fight. He hated government. So he said, why don't we do a, a three-way land trade with BLM? They can get involved. There's an in-holding out there they want, or they have some flats I want, then why don't we just facilitate a three-way trade? Uh, the National Monument said that they weren't going to entertain that. So my grandfather went to court. It uh, took five years, and in 1985, we ended up doing the three-way land trade with them and the, the BLM. Uh, so that, that'd be our biggest challenge, I guess, with that. Um, then we, have, we own the Eastern Ridge. Um, there's a ridge line to the east of us we own. Which is very nice for riding and stuff, but obviously that creates quite a um, 
the, the longhorns aren't, aren't scared of mountains so that we do have to make sure we, we are patrolling the fences, even though it's rather rugged territory because the, the longhorns are, they'll go right up and over them. Hmm. That's uh, super interesting. Just thinking about all the history and the challenges that you guys have been through there. But like we've said, you're the third generation of White Stallion Ranch. You and your wife are actively helping to manage and run the ranch day to day. Um, but at some point, I'm sure there's going to be that discussion of having you guys take over the ranch. What plans do you have as you guys continue to look at becoming maybe the primary ranch owners and decision makers? Yeah, so we are taking over day to day. I know that. So, yeah, we're day to day. Dad, anytime we take a job away from dad, though, he just goes and finds a new one um, <laughs> somewhere else. So he's stayed, he's stayed as busy, but he's just involved more uh, off property with other things. Um, to be honest, I don't have too many details on how we're passing it down. Um, I know that it was quite a process to pass it down um, from my grandparents to my dad and uncle. And uh, I actually don't know. We're, we're kind of worried about how to do that because unfortunately as the, I mean, I'm sure there's a long, there's an onerous process, but mm-hmm. unfortunately for us, we're or fortunately on, on cuts both ways, I guess we're, it's all deeded We're 3000 acres were deeded. We're surrounded on two sides now by town. Um, and so the land value um, keeps going up and up. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, you know, facing the same thing where their, their, their values of their land are going up further than so much further than the value of the land is either as a ranch or a farm or something like that. And we have every intention of staying here and keeping it, but just the, the, the death tax, cause it's my family might be asset rich, but we're certainly not liquid rich. And then, you know, the, the death tax on a, uh, on a property like this will be obscene. So we're trying to figure out how to pass it um, mm-hmm. successfully. Yeah, which I think is a challenge that I'm sure a lot of our listeners face of ground oh, yeah. or assets that have been in the family for generations and figuring out the best way to make that transition as smooth as possible. Uh, Stephen, in the event that any of our listeners would be interested in being guests at your dude ranch, it's not just for city people that want in a ranch life experience. You get quite a few visitors from all over the spectrum. Is that right? Oh yeah, we get, I'd say half of our guests come almost never having seen a horse before. And then the other half own their own horses at home or, or come from the West. And it's just, they want to come see a different part of the West because they're from Montana or Wyoming or somewhere up there. And they, you know, obviously we have a very different landscape down here and the, the saguaros and different style of mountains. So it's, um, and we cater, we have horses that we, we cater to people who, uh, ride very well and ride at home all the time and work their own cattle and stuff. So it's a fun vacation, you know, no matter your experience level. And, you know, this way you don't have to, you can go run around in the desert. You don't have to do your own dishes and you have a nice comfortable bed that you didn't have to make at the end of the day. And so it's fun for all experience levels. Absolutely. And I can attest it's an awesome ranch. I got to visit a few weeks ago when I was in Tucson and it's just a really unique experience. I think regardless of if you come from an agricultural background or not, but Stephen, if we do have listeners that are interested in visiting the ranch for themselves, how can they find out more information? Uh, So the best would be um, whitestallion.com is our website. Um, So that, that has all of our information about our rides and activities and all the, you know, amenities that we offer in rooms. Um, another way you could call uh, 
and then connect either to the front desk or reservations through that number, um, and they're happy to answer any questions. But um, the website um, has, a, has a lot of information and photos, and uh, we have a Facebook as well under White Stallion that you can check out. Fantastic. Stephen, thank you again so much for joining us today. I feel like we've just scratched the surface on the White Stallion Ranch story, but certainly fun to hear nonetheless. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much for your time and having me on. Well, that was really cool, Delaney. We obviously had a chance to talk to him and he was out working. It's always great to get boots on the ground experience, some perspective for our listeners to hear. Absolutely. And a really cool story. And honestly, you don't have to be a city slicker to go visit this ranch. I personally am super excited to go visit it again. And I grew up in agriculture and, and around cattle, but it's just kind of a neat story that they have a neat history. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, listeners, for tuning in. Don't be afraid to reach out to us on social media. We love the interaction. But for today, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.